Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. I trust you had a fabulous Thanksgiving holiday. It's an encouraging time of the year to remember uh, the ways the Lord has blessed us and to encourage each other that way and to uh, spend time in prayer and reflection on the ways God has blessed us. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis 37, we will read the first 11 verses together, and then we will work our way through the remainder of the passage. Listen now to the divinely inspired, inerrant Word of our God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun The moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. Let's pray. Father, we pause before we continue with the reading and preaching of your word to ask for your blessing. We ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts in these next few minutes, that we would see what is on the page, that we would see what you intend to communicate to us, even from this story of Joseph and his struggles with his brothers. Help us not to be distracted by thoughts of uh, what has come in the past or what might come in the future or things that weigh on us even now. We pray that you would be at work by your Spirit in our hearts with your Word open before us, even in these next few minutes. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we 
Come to uh, familiar narrative passages, particularly passages that uh, uh, are in the Old Testament. Maybe we've heard them since we were children in Sunday school. It's tempting for us to think, wow, I know this story. I know this one. I know what's going to happen. I know the events. I know the characters. And, uh, and so what can happen is we sort of zone out in our own minds. But the fact is that when we open a passage, even as familiar as this one, that talks to us about a story that we have heard from uh, the beginning of our time in Sunday school, that we've read over and over perhaps, we've had told to us, we've heard it preached on many times, we need to keep in mind that we are dealing with the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces right down to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And this passage is here for a reason. And so we want to uh, come to our passage today expectantly. And really, that's how we should come to sermons every time. That's how we should come to God's Word every time. That we expect to hear from God because He speaks in His Word. And so, as we are looking at a familiar passage today, my prayer is that we will come with hearts ready to examine what is here, ready to think about what God means to communicate to us in our circumstances, because this is a a message today that is for you in your circumstance. It's for me in my circumstance. It's not just ancient history. It's not just a familiar story, though it's certainly familiar to us. And so, as we work our way through our passage today, that's my challenge to you, and that's my desire for all of us, is that we would enter into the passage to understand what is being said, and then, in light of what is said in this passage, examine our own lives, examine our own circumstances, and our thoughts about our circumstances, so that we might be discipled from God's Word with how we ought to proceed. And so, our passage today... I've entitled the message, Joseph Gets Put in His Place. We're introduced to, we've met Joseph before, but he really comes on the scene in his own way in this passage. And so um, we see that he gets put in his place, first of all, because of his brother's jealousy. His brother's jealousy. And so um, we, we... our encounter Joseph right here, and we encounter a number of reasons, even in this first couple of paragraphs, of why his brothers might not think he's the greatest in the world. And part of it seems to be because he's pretty sure that he already is, uh, or maybe that's the case. Really, um, interpreters throughout history have, been, uh, ha- have had different opinions about Joseph. Is he this pristine character? You never see him blatantly sin, uh, but... Um, and so some, some interpreters have viewed him as this almost angelic person who's just mistreated as he goes through this story. Others, on the other hand, look at Joseph and see he's a brat, that he's arrogant, that he loves to tattle on his brothers, and he loves to tell stories to his brothers that, gonna make, that are going to make him look good and his brothers look bad. He revels in the fact that his dad made him this special coat that makes him stand out as the favorite and those sorts of things. And, and however we might think about uh, Joseph, we can see that he, uh, he, uh, he could have been wiser in his relationship with his siblings at the very least, right? We see in verse 2 that he, um, the way he relates to his brothers is by tattling on them. He brings a bad report to dad about how they are managing the flocks, 
right? So he loves to tell tales, uh, and these apparently it's true, it seems. I don't think he's lying here necessarily, but, uh, but he ran to Daddy and, and told him that uh, um, whatever his bad report was about them, but it made his brothers not look good, and you're going to cause problems when that's the way you relate to those around you, right? And so we see that that's a, that's a problem. We see also that the way their father treats Joseph is going to be a problem as well, that uh, Joseph is the favorite one. Because he's the son of his old age, Jacob looks on him with particular favor, so much so that he makes this special coat. We don't really know um, what those words translate as, but, but it's some kind of uh, a coat that makes him stand out from his brothers. Maybe it says Joseph number one on the back. I'm not sure what, what it is, but he stands out. His dad is playing favorites, right? And we've seen this before with Jacob's dad and mom doing the same thing that we are kind of carrying on the trend here. But how are the brothers going to feel about Joseph if dad loves him the most? If it's evident that dad loves him the most because he gave him the jacket that says dad loves Joseph the most, they're not going to be too excited about him. And so um, he's, he's kind of off to a bad start. And then, of course, we get to the dream situation. He has these dreams. And, of course, he immediately tells his brothers about these dreams. We have dream number one here, which is the binding sheaves in the field. And so they're, they're gathering the sheaves up into, into uh, bundles. And, and he, he has this dream that, that his sheaf stands up and all the others gather around and bow down to him bow down to his sheaf. And of course, he tells his brothers about it. His brothers respond how you might expect brothers to respond to news like that. Yeah, thanks for telling me, pal. I, I see where your mind is. I see how much you think you are better than us. You think you're going to rule over us someday, you little twerp. You know, that, that's, that's the original Hebrew there. And so he has this first dream. He tells them they don't take kindly to it. They hate him all the more. They can't speak peacefully to him. And then he has another dream. And this one, the sun and the moon and the stars bow down to him. And of course, he tells that dream as well. And, and even his parents aren't too excited about that one. His dad says, what, are, are we really your mom and, and I and your brothers? Are we going to bow down to you? Is that, is that what you think of yourself? You're kind of high and mighty, aren't you? And so all of these things the circumstance within the family right here means Joseph is, uh, is not uh, the most popular of the children, though his dad loves him the most. So they naturally, all of these things inspire jealousy in his brothers. And we're going to see in the next section that that jealousy is going to flare into more than just feelings of jealousy. And so we turn to verse 12 and we see that it's not only uh, does he get uh, put into his place because of his brother's jealousy, but because of his brother's conspiracy? Now his brothers went to pasture their flock, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, you not your, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So they're out, uh, the older brothers are out working, they're out pasturing the flocks, and you've got Joseph here with his dad, and he gets sent on this mission. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. In verse 15, a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So 
Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And so they're out pasturing, and, uh, and they've moved on from one place to another, and Joseph is struggling to find them, don't really know why that is, but he finally tracks them down, and then we read in verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So you have a situation where they are removed from their dad, removed from accountability, they're out pasturing the flocks, and the troublemaker shows up, the dreamer, the, the, the pipsqueak, the one that the dad just dotes on and the rest of us can't stand, he shows up and so they conspire against him to kill him. And they said to one another, verse 19, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So they see him coming, and they concoct a plan. We can see him from a distance because of the flashiness of his, of his, uh, of his coat, and, and we can tell it's him, and he's coming, and he's probably going to take another bad report to our dad. He's probably going to tattle on us because we left from this place to that place, and and so they decide they're just going to kill him. Let's, let's kill him and throw him in a pit. Let's get rid of him. And then we'll see what will happen with his dreams. We'll see what's going to come about with, uh, with all these visions of grandeur that he had. And so plan A here is let's just kill him. That's some extreme jealousy. That's, that's not just, you know, we don't like to invite him to Thanksgiving dinner. Right? We don't like to have him around. You know, we, we like to run off and not tell him. No, they, they see him coming, and so they want to kill him. The bitterness is that deep. So that's plan A. Let's just kill him. We'll see what happens from there. Verse 21, but when Reuben, firstborn, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben, the oldest, is, is playing the role and he's doing it well. And he, he wants to defend his, his brother or at least not have his other brothers kill him. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him in a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So the, the action that they take with plan B is we're not going to kill him, but we're just going to throw him in the pit and we'll decide later what we're going to do. And of course, Reuben has this plan that he's going to rescue him in some way. He's going to restore him to his dad. The brothers aren't very happy with Joseph. They're willing to take extreme uh, measures. And of course, that's not new when we look at siblings in Genesis, is it? We see siblings struggling with each other from the first set of siblings when Cain killed Abel. And so we have a sibling rivalry here as well, and they want to throw him in a pit. So plan A was to kill him. Reuben steps in and says, let's follow plan B. Let's not kill him. But then we're going to see a plan C as well. <clears throat> then they sat down to eat, having thrown him in the pit, took his coat from him. Remember, the pit was empty, so he's not going to drown. Throw him in the pit. And then they sat down to eat, verse 25, which, by the way, seems callous to me. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah 
said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? That word profit is key. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So Reuben gives the first idea. Reuben's the firstborn, but we've seen that Reuben is sort of persona non grata already because of what happened in an earlier chapter that he went into his father's wife. And so, but Reuben, being the firstborn, he makes a suggestion. They follow it for a while, but then Judah comes up with a better one. Judah comes up with a suggestion that's going to make them some money. Yeah, we'll do away with him, but we're not going to kill him. We're going to sell him, make make a buck, and he'll still be gone. It's a win-win. So that's the decision he wants to do. Verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So plan C is, let's sell him into slavery. And so they seek to make a buck. They're not going to kill him. They're going to make some money off of him. And so they sell him to these slavers. Because Joseph's getting put in his place, isn't he? First of all, he was kind of knocked down a rung when his brothers took his coat off of him. And then they threw him in this pit. And then they went and had dinner while he was down there. And now the favored son, the, the most beloved of dad, is sold to, sra- uh, to slavers, and he's going to be taken down into Egypt. He's being knocked down a rung. And then finally, we're going to see uh, his brother's callousness. This isn't the end of the story. They've gone through with their plan. They've sold him. They've made 20 whole shekels of silver because they sold their brother, but they avoided bloodshed. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. Apparently, Reuben wasn't in on this, and he's, he's distraught. And we see in verse 30, he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? I'm the firstborn. Dad's going to hold this against me, and this is his favorite son who, who is now gone, and so where shall I go? Verse 31, then they took Joseph's robe the one with all the fancy colors or the name emblazoned across the back or the long sleeves or the fancy coat. He took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They're going through with their plan and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. You, you feel the callousness of the brothers? You feel how their hatred for their, their younger brother has, has boiled over into being willing to lay hands on him, being willing to strip him of this, uh, this coat, being willing to throw him into a pit, and now they've been willing to sell him into slavery. What kind of What kind of gall does that take? What kind of a hard heart does it take to sell your brother literally into slavery for 20 shekels of silver, not much money? And now they've taken his coat and they're going to cover their trail. So they slaughter a goat. They've got some blood there and they dip the 
the, the robe in the blood, and they take it to dad and say, tell us, is this Joseph's coat? They're selling the lie to their dad. They go through with it. And, and you imagine what, what, how, how it must have tugged on their hearts. You would think if they, if they have hearts at this point, how much it must have tugged on their hearts to see the dad shocked to see this, the, the robe of his favorite son. This special robe that he gave to him and now it's dipped in blood. It's, it's covered. It, it looks like whoever was wearing it was torn to pieces. And he's mourning. And he's sorrowful. And his conclusion is, Obviously, Joseph's dead. He's been ripped apart by wild beasts. And the sons, the other brothers, they stick with the story. They don't break. What a hard-hearted lot. A number of weeks back, uh, before evening church, my wife ran into some... uh, uh, boys that were uh, skating around the, the property here and, and scootering around and, and whatnot. And so she went to talk to them and, and whatnot. And, and uh, they started in with the story. And one of them must have been the ringleader because he was creative and he was quick on his feet and he could sell a lie. And he just started talking and telling stories about, oh, our parents are here and yeah, we're going to go to church and blah, blah, blah. And this, uh, this whole, he's just telling this story and he's, he's going in uh, layer after layer of this story and, and, and just selling it all the way. And of course, my wife has kids and she knows a thing or two and she knows it was all malarkey. Nevertheless, she's listening to this kid and finally one of the others breaks. And he says, I'm sorry, he's He's lying. Finally, one of them had a conscience. Finally, one of them recognized uh, what was happening, right? But the, the ringleader was, was going to sell it all away. And here you have a, a group of all of these brothers who are not lying about scooting around on the property. They're lying about what they did with their brother, their dad's favorite son. And they stick to it. They stick to their story. They persist in their lie. And look at verse 34. You see... Jacob's response, Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days, as you could imagine. Verse 35, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. The hypocrisy, the sons who did this to him are trying to comfort him. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, the place of death, to my son, mourning. And thus his father wept for him. In all of that agony, watching their old uh, aged father mourn the loss of his favorite son. And they stick to their story. And so, verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So that's the story. That's the events that, that lead into the Joseph narrative. And we're going to see that except for chapter 38, which is its own thing, the rest of the book of Genesis is really about Joseph. Focuses on him. He's the main acting character. He's, he's often the focus. But here's how it starts off. The favored son the beloved one has been put into his place. His brothers clearly hate him enough to be willing to take 
this kind of action against him, selling him into slavery, lying to Jacob about it, covering it all up with this blood-soaked robe, and he has been put into his place. He has been sold into slavery, and he is now the slave of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. Well, you know the story, and none of that was surprising to you. Uh, What we want to get to, though, what we want to focus on is the implications. The implications for us of this narrative right here. This is setting up. These are the circumstances that set up the remainder of the book of Genesis. So what are the implications for us? Well, first, the first implication is pretty pretty low-hanging fruit, and that is that parental favoritism can turn siblings into enemies. We don't have to reach very far for that one. That's not very profound, and you could observe that in the rest of life. But nevertheless, it would be a shame to pass this story and not notice it. And by the way, it was the same thing, wasn't it, with Isaac and Rebekah playing favorites and the, the enemies that it made out of Jacob and Esau. And here we have it in this situation as well. There's another implication. God often uses small things to accomplish His big purposes. God uses small things to accomplish big purposes. Think about it. Joseph's brothers desire to get rid of him. It's a small thing. It's a squabble between siblings. It's a, I wish he wasn't around here. It's, I wish we could leave him behind. And, 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 and that grows and develops and festers. But their desire to get rid of him is used by God to make him the second most powerful man on earth. Spoiler. That's where the story's going, right? He's going to be sold to Potiphar and events are going to happen. And, and the next thing you know, Joseph's going to be in a position where he gets to call the shots for all of Egypt. How did that come about? Well, God used the, the, the festering hatred of his brothers to bring it about. God uses small things to accomplish big purposes. A squabble between brothers leads to nations being fed that otherwise would not have been fed. There's going to be a famine coming in, in, the, in the decades to come. A famine coming that's going to affect nations, the whole region, not just Egypt itself, but all the way up into Canaan is going to be affected as well. And how do all of those people receive food? Well, the food is going to be provided by Egypt. How did Egypt know to store up food in the rich years? Because Joseph was in that position. How did Joseph get in that position? Because of all of these circumstances that happened. The brothers turning on him ultimately leads to nations being fed. God uses small things to accomplish big purposes. That ought to change the way we look at small things. Thirdly, the third implication for the Christian. We can be sure that even the evil things we see happening in our lives will ultimately be used by God for our good. Was it a nice thing? Was it a good thing, what the brothers did to Joseph? No, it was evil start to finish. But we as Christians have the promise of Romans 8.28. And by the way, this passage and others uh, similar to it argue for the same thing. That we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The good may not be the good that we might like initially. 
Joseph probably, as he was down in the bottom of this pit, was probably not thinking, hey, this is really good. God's working good in my life. Right? Or when he's sold into slavery and he's chained up and he's probably walking behind the wagons, I don't know. He probably wasn't meditating on how, uh, how good God's plan for his life was. But nevertheless, you and I know from Scripture that that is the case, that God works good for those who are His children, particularly and most especially, He conforms us to the image of His Son. And He uses all things for that purpose. And that is a good place to be. And that is a good thing to know. That's our, our third implication, fourth implication. We're going to see that Joseph reflects on this chapter in his life and later conversation with his brothers. This, the goings-on here in uh, 37 and, and how this all started and, and all that's back there, he's going to be talking with his brothers about it. And in that place and the end of Genesis, the brothers have come to know that Joseph is in a position of absolute power. Their life is in his hands. And they're naturally afraid. They're reflecting back on what we just read. And they're thinking, we thought we got rid of him. We thought we got into a situation where we wouldn't have to deal with all of this. And yet here he is in this position. He's in, he's in the position of the most powerful man, save one, in all the world. And he has every right to hate us. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? And Joseph shares with them a hard-fought truth that they need to hear and a truth that you and I need to hear as well. He tells them in chapter 50 and verse 20, speaking to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You indeed meant evil, and God meant good. The brothers had their own evil motives for selling Joseph into slavery. There wasn't a good motive in the mix. They just wanted him gone. The only reason they decided not to kill him is because Reuben stepped in and talked him out of it. And then they remembered they could make a buck. So they sold him. Their motives were evil. They had their own evil motives for selling Joseph into slavery, but God had his particular motives, his good motives for them selling Joseph into slavery. His motives were entirely good. They were entirely perfect. They were entirely wonderful. Same actions. So amazingly, the whole nation of Egypt got to have food when others were starving because Joseph had been sold into slavery. More importantly, the whole tribe of Israel got to have food when other nations were starving because Joseph was sold into slavery. And most importantly of all, one son, Judah, was spared from starvation. Why is Judah so important? Well, because he will father a tribe that will eventually give birth to Jesus, the Son of God, who was to save his people from their sins. Jesus would come from Judah. Judah couldn't die in this scene. The others had promise uh, wrapped up in them as well, but not like Judah. From him would come the Son of God who would save his people from their sins. 
because Joseph was sold into slavery by hateful brothers. And so this future son likewise would be betrayed by those near him. And he too would suffer terrible consequences because of the sinful motives of those around him, those who should have looked out for his good. He suffers those terrible motives, those terrible consequences. And in a state that's really a statement that's very reminiscent of Joseph's words to his brothers, we read this in Acts chapter 4 and verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, this is in prayer to God, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, All these people gathered together, why? For what purpose? To do whatever your plan, your hand, had predestined to take place. The very same circumstance of evil being done to Joseph by those around him who hated him, seeking to accomplish evil in his life, is paralleled in Jesus himself with those gathered around him who wanted evil for him. They wanted him gone. They wanted him off the scene, and so they sought to kill him. And yet, in both cases, God was at work. God meant good purposes from those evil purposes of the men around the sun. But where Joseph's plight led to food being given to earthly bodies... What Jesus endured was for the purpose of eternal life being given to immortal souls. And so an implication that I want you to see, this fourth implication, an implication that I guarantee will change your life when you come to understand it, is that God accomplishes His good purposes and intentions not only despite but even through the evil purposes and intentions of sinful men. God accomplishes His good purposes and intentions, not only despite the evil purposes and intentions of men, but even through those very evil purposes and intentions, God is accomplishing His good. If we can wrap our minds around that, if we can understand that that is the biblical teaching, the biblical truth, if we can grab a hold of that, I guarantee it will change your life. I don't often say I guarantee, but that is one truth that if we can, if we can come to wrestle with that, if we can come to rest in that, we will begin to see it everywhere in Scripture and we will begin to see it everywhere in our own lives. And we will be changed forever. This story, this account of Joseph, has a lot of significance for Christian theology and will be referenced many times in the remainder of the Bible, in big ways and in small ways. And in many ways, Joseph is a type of Christ pointing us forward to him 
There are a lot of things we could learn, but the biggest one that I want us to learn from this passage is that right there, that God is intending good even when those around us intend evil against us. And God will bring about His good. He will accomplish it as He did with Joseph and his brothers. And folks, there is peace in that. There is rest in that truth like there is rest nowhere else. Because it points us to the fact that God is all the way in control. That there are not dueling forces and God just happens to be the stronger force. And He's going to win out in the end. No, passages like this one and Joseph's reflection on it in, in 50-20 of Genesis points us to the fact that God is, is so over all of these things that He's even bringing about good through the very evil intentions of men like Joseph's brothers. So what's our application? First of all, take heart, Christian. When you see hardship or difficulty begin to come into your experience, isn't it our way to shy away from difficulty, to like steer away from it, want to get away from that in our lives? We don't want to recognize it. We don't want it to be there. We want to get out of that circumstance as quickly as we, as we can. When hardship arises, when difficulty or pain shows itself, we run the other way, don't we? When, I'm going to tell a story on, we were skating yesterday. We had a lot of fun skating at the ice rink. It was a ton of fun, and, and uh, Brennan had a great time, a great time, and then he fell and smashed his head. And it was a bummer. It was a real bummer. And then he was all done skating, wasn't he? <laughs> he was like, I don't want anything to do with, I don't, I don't ever want to do that again. Because that hurts when you fall down and whack your head. And it does, right? I've done that. It's no fun, right? That's the response of all of us. Something, something bad happens in life, something difficult comes up, and we're like, I'm done with that. I'm going to head the other direction so that I don't ever have to experience that again. But take heart, Christian, when you see hardship or difficulty begin to come into your experience, God will someday use that difficulty for good in your life. I have no idea how God is going to use uh, Brennan Crack and his noggin on the, on the ice uh, in his life. I have no idea. But I, the, the Bible tells us that God does use even the hard things and the painful things in the life of the Christian for our good. We can take that to the bank. So take heart in that, Christian. Secondly, look for the good that God is intending in the bad things you are experiencing. Very often we can't find it. Very often when a bad situation, circumstance happens to us, we're not able to identify what is the good coming out of it. What is the good God's intending here? Okay, I get that. And often when people ask me, how could it be that God is working good out of this situation? And often my answer is, I don't know. But that's different than us giving up. That's different than us just resigning ourselves. Well, I guess I'm just going to suffer. Someday it'll all make sense, but probably not in this life. And probably, you know, only, only because I'm perfected in heaven will I think that's good enough. <laughs> So we sort of give up and we just, we stop, uh, we stop thinking about our circumstances as if God's in control of our circumstances. We can't do that. We need to repent of that. That's a practical kind of atheism. 
that we live with. Did you notice even in the reading of this chapter, where is God? Is He explicitly present? No. He's not. And I love it when the biblical author does that because is God absent in this chapter? Is He, is he, is he at work? Oh boy. In massive ways God is at work in this chapter. But He's not on the scene and He's not being identified and He's not explicit. Folks, that's our life. We live life in such a way that we, we don't usually see God explicitly at work. We normally just go through the chapters of our life thinking, well, these were the circumstances. We know God's at work. We know God exists and we know uh, God hasn't changed, but we don't, we don't see Him on the page of our life. But we need to remember, folks, and we need to remind ourselves that He is there working, though He's not on the page. But all the circumstances are useful in His hands, and He is accomplishing His purposes even in our lives. And so, Christian, we need to learn to look for the good that God is intending in the bad things we're experiencing. Don't be lazy in that. And don't don't allow yourself to become glum. Look for what God is doing. What is the hard thing that you are going through or the hard thing you're being threatened with? In that situation, ask yourself, what good might the Lord be bringing out of this situation? Now, you could be wrong. You, you probably will be wrong. But that's okay. The, the point is we are looking for God and what He's doing. We are trusting in Him rather than, rather than giving an answer and then forgetting about it. Yeah, God's working out good, but I don't see it. I'll never know it. So I just have to grin and bear it. Let's look for God. Thirdly, our third point of application, rest and rejoice in what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Both in His obedience to God all His life and in His death at the hands of lawless men, which God intended, according to Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4, which God intended so that all you who believe in Christ would be saved from your sins. God accomplishes His good purposes, especially your redemption in Christ, even through the evil purposes and intentions of sinful men. And so let's rest in that. Let's remind ourselves of that. Let's rejoice in that truth. Don't let it depart from your lips. Don't let it depart from your mind. That our very redemption is the result of a circumstance like this one that Joseph went through. Our very redemption is, is, is the result of a circumstance that's vastly different from our own, but it's the same working of God bringing about good through the evil intentions of evil men in our lives. And so we can rest. We can rest that, that God who did all that He did in the life of Joseph... God who accomplished all that He accomplished in the death of Christ. That same, that same God operating in the same way is at work in your life. And so we can look to Christ. We can rejoice that we have peace with God in Him. We can rejoice that in Him we have that promise that He is working all things together 
for our good. And that is a truth. That is a reality. May we make it more and more so in our lives. Let's pray. Father, this account of Joseph and his wrestling with his brothers and their relationship and the, all the ways that he angered them and alienated them and, and, uh, and built himself up and then the result of their hatred for him. They're not even being able to speak peacefully to them. They couldn't stand him. So much so that they sought to kill him and instead opted just to sell him as a slave. And through those very evil circumstances, the hearts of those evil men, they were not seeking to obey you. They were not responding to the call of God in their life to sell their brother into slavery. They just wanted him gone. And you were at work. Not explicitly on the page yet, but you were at work. And Father, in our own lives, we see struggles and difficulties, sometimes caused by the, the, the evil actions of others and, and all too often just uh, a million other ways that we face difficulty and pain and hardship. And we don't see you explicitly on the page of our life. But you're there. As you were with Joseph, you're there. As you were with Jesus, I'm sure the disciples were distraught, entirely, utterly downcast and distraught when our Lord was arrested, when He was taken, when He was tried, when He was hanged on that tree. I'm sure they were utterly distraught, wondering where is God on the page of this situation. And there you were, accomplishing redemption for sinners like us. Father, may we look to you in greater and ever-increasing confidence in you, encouraged by the pages of Scripture, encouraged by the lives of the saints who have gone before us, encouraged by those around us who continually point us to you and to your good work in our lives and in theirs. And may we grow in our, in our trust of you. May we rest and find joy and peace and that joy and peace will last us all of our lives. No matter the hardship, no matter the difficulty, though, though they may be extreme, that peace will last, and that peace will last and endure through all eternity. And so we are grateful for you, our Lord, sovereign over all things and at work in our lives, who has committed himself to saving sinners committed himself to doing good for those who belong to him. So, Father, we rejoice and we praise you. We praise you for these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all. I want to encourage you that uh, there will be a, a, a prayer team uh, up front. Um, if you want to pray with someone, I would encourage you about church tonight. Otherwise, God bless you all and you are dismissed.